Well, I trust um, that you're all doing well at home, and it's a joy to preach this morning. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn with me to Mark chapter 13, we're going to uh, continue in our journey through Mark. So if you recall last week, we uh, started looking at this chapter, which really is um, it's a prophetic word that Jesus gives to his disciples, and it's a, a beautiful portion, but it is also quite difficult to get your head around because there's so many things that are happening at the same time. And we're going to look at some of the strands of this prophetic word this morning, and then I'm going to finish off um, next week. But I'd like to focus this morning on a, on a verse, um, 20, verse 14, which is a rather strange verse. Um, it uses this phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, which is a, quite a dramatic kind of statement that um, Jesus makes. And I'm going to spend some time having a look uh, what that might mean and how we can understand that this morning. But just remember the context of chapter 13 is um, this prophecy that Jesus gives about the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And last week we had to look at this main theme of Jesus saying, I want you to stand God. I want you to watch out and keep God over your lives. And there were two main things that he, he um, encouraged them to do, his disciples. The first was just not to put their trust or their faith in um, grand buildings like the temple or in outward forms of religion. Uh, and remember, he had been kind of arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they'd been trying to question him about a number of things. And Jesus wasn't impressed with the scribes or the Pharisees, and he wasn't particularly impressed that his disciples were absolutely impressed with this grand temple. And we had a look at that last week, and uh, we looked at the building and actually how amazing it was. And it was easy for his disciples to have been distracted by that. But Jesus encourages them, says, don't put your trust in that. And then secondly, he said, don't put your confidence in in anyone who claims to be a Messiah. And we had a look at that last week, those two areas. But today, from verse 9, we're going to read now, uh, from verse 9 through to verse 22, Jesus says this. Again, the theme is a standing guard. He says, You must be on your guard, for you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you would say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved." When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this time will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when the God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, 
if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So we see again uh, in these verses this morning, Jesus continuing this amazing prophetic word um, and encouraging his disciples to be on the guard. But the difference is here this morning with this portion is that Jesus is really pointing them forwards to things that are going to happen to his disciples as the result of the temple being destroyed and Jerusalem being uh, besieged. Um, and because the, the language is prophetic, there are a number of layers that, and ways that we can understand this portion. And I'm going to look at three um, with you this morning. And the first layer is really in verse 9 to verse 13, where Jesus speaks about persecution that is going to come directly upon those that follow him and believe in him. And as we look at history, we certainly know that persecution did come. Uh, Christians were per persecuted by Jewish leaders, by the Sanhedrin. They were publicly whipped in the synagogues uh, if they were found guilty as heretics, and obviously they were. And so persecution certainly did come upon the church. We also know that, for example, uh, Christians stood trial before Roman courts, before governors, before kings. We know, for example, that Paul stood trial before Felix before Festus and before King Agrippa. And we also know that sometimes people were betrayed by members of their own families and friends, which must be the most painful betrayal of all. And we also know from history that Christians certainly were hated. Um, and I know that because Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, for example, in his writings, refers to Christianity as an accursed superstition. Or Seotonius, who's also another Roman historian, called it a new and evil superstition, speaking of Christianity. And the main reason for this really was because Christianity seemed to cut across traditional family ties and family values, which were really important to Romans and the Roman culture. And that seemed to be supported by Jesus' own statement and own words when he said to people that love for him should come before your love for your father or your sister or your brother or your son or your daughter. And so... It seems to be a misunderstanding through what Jesus said that, that Romans um, thought that. And to complicate this even further, um, Christians were also slandered. And one of the ways that they were slandered and the most serious charge brought against Christians is that they were cannibals. And um, this, again, seems to have been rooted in the misunderstanding of the words of Jesus. We broke bread this morning. And you know that Jesus, when he described that, he, he said, this is my body and this is my blood. And when he took the, the, the bread and the wine. And so the misunderstanding of that by Romans in their culture, they thought that Jesus was talking literally about blood and uh, uh, body, literal body and blood, um, and the eating of that as a cannibal would do. And so... That was a way that Christians were slandered. But Jesus' encouragement to his um, disciples in all of this, in this first number of verses, is he who endures to the end will be saved. So that's the kind of first layer that we can understand this prophetic word. Uh, the second layer is this. And um, here Jesus' words seem clearly to point to historical events. And this is verse 14, which I've mentioned already. When the abomination that causes desolation is seen. This is actually quoting Daniel, um, the, uh, the book of Daniel, uh, in da Daniel 12, 11. And Daniel puts it slightly differently, but it's the same sense. Daniel says this, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes the desolation is set up. Here Daniel is prophesying of what is to come. 
And we, we do think this has got to do with historical events because in, in Luke's um, version of the same story, in Luke 21, verse 20, he says this. He says of this prophecy of Jesus, when you see Ju Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And so this phrase uh, that is a reference of Daniel People have tried to understand it in various ways in terms of what historical events did happen. What was this abomination that caused desolation, and what does that mean? And the first way that um, uh, scholars have looked at this is to, phrase some, uh, is to reference something that happened when there was a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, he was a Greek uh, emperor, a ruler, and he did something in, in 168 B.C., he wanted to impose Greek culture onto Palestine, onto the Jewish people. And so what he did is that he built an altar to Zeus in the temple, right on the altar of burnt offerings, which was the most precious place for, um, for Jews. And in addition to that, he sacrificed a pig on top of the altar, and he made the practice of Judaism a capital offense. So he was trying to impose his Greek culture onto the Jews. And so, obviously, for Jewish people, this was a natural way of finding fulfillment in Daniel's prophecy when this, when this action happened of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so when Jesus quotes Daniel, perhaps he's, he's looking back to that defining moment in the history of Israel and then looking forward at the same time to the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy in the coming destruction of the temple that he foresees is going to happen. In, and uh, this temple in which the disciples have shown, shown such pride. And so Jesus takes the, the, the words of Daniel and kind of elevates them and says that there's going to become an act so appalling that the whole temple will cease to be the, the focus of God's glory. And it's going to ultimately be destroyed completely. So that's the first way that, that um, scholars have looked at this verse. Uh, secondly... Others have pointed to other events. For example, um, looking back from the 4th century, there's a church um, historian or one of the church fathers called Eusebius, and he looks back from the 4th century to the 1st century, and he links these words in verse 14 to what happened in 66 AD. And what happened in 66 AD was, again, there was rebellion in Palestine led by zealots, and they won an amazing victory over the Roman 12th legion and was led by a guy called Cestius Callus. And many people living in Jerusalem at that time recognized there was no possible way that the zealots could win a long-term battle with Rome, that they ultimately would be defeated. And so many people who understood that and saw that started leaving Rome, uh, started leaving Jerusalem and getting out of Jerusalem um, because they knew that the Romans would come and with vengeance upon them. And so it was only two years later in 68 AD that the Romans began to push in more on, um, on Jerusalem because uh, this, this re revolt had been going on for two years. And so Christians had had a long time and uh, believers had a long time to get out of the city before the actual siege began. So, and that led to the destruction of the temple and, the, and Jerusalem in, in AD 70. So Eusebius, he points back to verse 14 and says, actually God was warning believers. He was saying to them, this, this destruction is coming, get out of the city, and they had four years to do that. Uh, thirdly, Josephus, who a, is a Jewish historian, also finds fulfillment of this prophecy of Daniel quoted by Jesus uh, in the action taken by these zealots in, in, in terms of 
this um, same revolt that I've mentioned. Because there was a Jewish prophecy that the temple would be desecrated by Jewish hands. And, Je and Josephus saw this fulfilled in these acts that the Zealots committed during this rebellion that Eusebius um, mentions. During that period, the Zealots moved into the temple. They occupied the temple. They let people that had committed crimes ro roam about freely in the Holy of Holies, which was a desecration to the Jewish people. And Josephus actually says that uh, some of these people even committed murder in the temple. And they, the Zealots installed, installed their own high priest uh, in place of the high priest who had been serving in the temple at that time. And so Josephus says that this is the fulfillment of Daniel's words, that this abomination of the temple fulfilled, was fulfilled in the actions of these zealots who des desecrated the temple and ultimately brought God's judgment by the hands of the Romans. So the, the, these are three sort of historical ways that scholars and writers have tried to interpret what these verses in Daniel might mean. And if you read further from verse 15, um, we see the story is one of utter chaos. Uh, people are encouraged to flee for their lives to the mountains. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. So there's this absolute uh, dark prophecy by Jesus of what it's going to be like to be in Jerusalem. And it's interesting that this idea of fleeing, of running from, from uh, things, is seen in the Old Testament as a way of escaping God's judgment. Um, and the tradition of the Old Testament does connect this idea of fleeing from something to the idea of God's judgment. For example, in Genesis 19, if you remember the story of Lot, when the angel uh, gets him and his family out of the city, it, it says this in uh, Genesis 19, 17, and as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley, escape to the hills, unless, lest you be swept away. Or Zechariah, verse 14, verse 5 says this, you will flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach Azal, and you will flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the day of Uzziah the king. So there's this idea in the Old Testament that when God's judgment comes, people flee. And ordinarily, Jerusalem would have been a place of refuge where people could have gone to f seek refuge from, from any kind of judgment. Uh, for example, Zechariah 2 verse 10 says this, Sing and rejoice, o daughters of Jerusalem, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So here's the idea, is that whenever judgment comes, Jerusalem would be a place of refuge and sanctuary for God's people. The difference that, that Jesus is saying here in this prophecy is that actually those walls that were walls that protected people in the past, that were impregnable, that could never be overcome, are not going to be a defense for God's people anymore. And the truth is that... Uh, as we see historically what happened with the, the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of, of, the, of the temple is that people who did not leave the city ultimately were starved 
or were destroyed uh, and had a violent death at the hands of the Romans. And in fact, Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, records horrific stories of cannibalism by the people that were left in Jerusalem as the siege dragged on and on and on. So this really is a dreadful kind of uh, prophetic word that Jesus brings, um, speaking of the future that is going to happen. And I want to make just a special mention of verse 19 and verse 20, which says this, Those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when the, world, the, the God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And this, this is the part I want to focus on. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of his elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. I mean, I'm sure you would agree that this whole passage has been very dark, very pessimistic, speaking about this judgment that is coming for God's people. But here we see something of the light breaking through. Here we see some optimism in these words of Jesus. And it's a key for us as well in terms of difficult things that we might face in our lives from time to time. Jesus says this in these words, However terrible the time is that you are living in, don't think that God is disinterested. Don't think that God is disengaged with you because he's not. He's always engaged and interested in his people. And so what Jesus is saying is we, re- we never really see the whole story. Perhaps it's in moments when we're crying out and saying, God, where are you in all of this? Uh, like many might be doing right now with this COVID uh, epidemic, pandemic. Where or what is God doing at this time? Jesus said in these words that God actually shortens such times of suffering for the sake of his people. That's what he says. He says, um, if, God, if, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. And so the challenge is for you and I and living our lives is that we should never quickly bring judgment and think that we know what's going on because we never really fully see the whole story. And, and, and history teaches us that over and over again. And living by faith often means that we simply need to trust where we can't see things clearly. That's what it means to live by faith. And so that's what Jesus encourages his disciples with in this dark, dark time. He says, actually, in the midst of that, be encouraged because God is making those days as short as possible for the sake of his people. And then lastly in this portion, Jesus makes reference again to false messiahs. That will come. And even in the midst of this chaos, Jesus says, false messiahs will come and try and distract you from uh, God's call in your life. And he says in verse 21 and 22, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For many false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And here it's very interesting to me because we see in these verses the difference between false messiahs and how false messiahs use signs and wonders, and Jesus, the true messiah, and how he does miracles. You see, the heart of what this, these verses are saying is that false messiahs need people to be impressed by their signs and wonders because they really have nothing else to offer. That's what Jesus is saying. And by contrast, when we look at the life of Jesus, he seems to be quite restrained because whenever he does a miracle, he says to people, don't go and tell anyone. You don't go and don't tell anyone what you've seen. Just go back and, and uh, show yourself to the, the scribes and the Pharisees so they can ver- verify the miracle. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't perform miracles for people. He certainly does. But he never, he never uses miracles to compel anyone to believe. Do you notice that? He never does that. 
He never uses miracles to say, look what I've done for you, now believe. He never uses miracles to compel people towards faith. And this is the reason. Miracles are fundamentally not what the good news is about. Although signs and wonders are signposts that point us towards the good news. You see, Jesus, through his life and his death, he embodies, and his, his resurrection, he embodies the heart of the good news in who he is. And so I, I could put it another way to, uh, this morning. I could say, if I use this kind of illustration, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are the gold in the bank giving value to the currency. The currency are the notes, the notes and coins. The currency is signs and wonders. And so that what I'm trying to say, that the idea in these, in these verses is that false messiahs only have the notes and the coins. They don't have what's of eternal value in the bank to back, to back those signs and wonders up. That's what Jesus is saying. And so uh, the idea is that Jesus has the, the, the authority, he has the power, he has all of the value of the currency in the bank, and he demonstrates it through signs and wonders. That's the idea. And so the main task of all of us is to be on our guard against those who are false and to know the truth so we can persevere. And as I said last week, these are the, 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 this is the theme that, that Jesus continues to teach into for his disciples. When you see these things, don't be distracted. These are just the birth pains. They're the beginning of the birth pains, knowing that the end is going to come. But you don't be distracted. Remain faithful. Keep to what is true. Preach the gospel. Live your life in spite of difficult circumstances in your life. Keep your trust in me. And if you persevere to the end, you will be saved. So there, there are th three kind of layers for us of this prophetic word. And ultimately, next week, I want to look at the fourth layer, which ultimately is the most exciting. It's the final layer, because Jesus, in verse 24, then begins to point towards his second coming in this prophetic word, saying, this is what you ultimately must look forward to. I am coming again. And he says this, In those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the power in the heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That ultimately is what we have to look forward to. Jesus saying, ultimately, this is only temporal. What you're going through right now, the destruction that you're seeing, this is going to come. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be much tribulation for you. But ultimately, I am coming again. And lift up your eyes to see that I am coming again. And so we'll look at that next week. And it's a very exciting thing for us to anticipate that, yes, Jesus is coming again. And ultimately, that's what we look forward to with all of our hearts. So I know this has been a little bit um, of a different message this morning. Um, but it's, it's good to try and understand what the Scripture is saying so that we can live well and live with courage during these times, even uh, as we look forward to Jesus coming back again. Let's pray, and then we're going to finish our time together. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing one more song as we end. But let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you speak in your word to let us know what we can expect in our lives. And Lord, you've said that many things are going to happen before the final day that you come again. 
And my prayer is really simple this morning, Lord, that you would help us to live well, to live courageously, to live with focus, to live with faith, not to be distracted by all sorts of things around us, but to keep our eyes on you, the great King. Thank you that your promise is you are coming again. And so we lift up our eyes at the end of this meeting this morning to say, Lord, our trust is in you. Our trust is in you, Lord Jesus, that you are faithful to what you said is going to happen. And so we trust you, Lord, with our lives. We trust you with our future, knowing that as we persevere and are faithful, we will be saved and we will know the eternal glory that you have for us. Lord, as we sing the song now, I pray that you'll seal these things in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.